So this is a series on the mitzvah campaigns initiated by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. There are 10 mitzvah campaigns, and this isn't one of them. The Mashiach campaign is actually, if you really understand the whole history, this is the umbrella under which all of the campaigns exist. So I want to give you a little history, but what I'm going to do is, instead of just giving you a history of how the Rebbe started initiating campaigns, to talk about Mashiach, I'm going to have to back up a little bit further. I'm going to go back to the creation of the world. As my favorite book begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're told that there was chaos and void before the world was created. And the Spirit of God hovered out over the waters, obviously not physical waters. The world hadn't been created yet. And Rashi, who is the foremost commentary on Chumash, on the five books of Moses, the one who teaches us the simple meaning, not the esoteric meaning, not the, the uh, mystical meaning, but the simple meaning of every verse, tell us, tells us that the Spirit of God that was hovering at the time of creation was Ruch HaYishol HaMashiach, the Spirit of the King Mashiach. In other words, before the world was even created, the concept of Mashiach, the spirit of Mashiach was already present. And uh, in the words of the great poet, the last indeed was the first in thought. You know where we say that, by the way? We say it in Luchadedi, we say it about Shabbos. Shabbos is the last of the seven-day cycle, but it was the first in thought. In other words, we, got, we, got, we get to Shabbos chronologically after all the days, but the whole purpose of the six days was to get to the seventh day. And in macrocosm, we know that, as King David writes in the Psalms, that every millennium is like a day in God's eyes. So also we look at history in terms of seven millennia, and that the seventh millennium is the Yem Shekule Shabbos, which we refer to, by the way, in, in benching, right, on Shabbos, when we say, Rachaman, may the merciful one, we say, may he help us or to bring us to, to inherit the day that is entirely Sabbath-like. What is that talking about, the day that's entirely Sabbath-like? It's not talking about a 24-hour day, it's talking about the era of Mashiach. So, From the beginning of the world, before creation, this was the Saif Maisabim Chshavatrila. This was the plan from the very beginning. This was the purpose from the very beginning. This is what it was all leading up to before the whole thing even started. They were supposed to get to an era that is perfect and Shabbos like. You know what Shabbos means? Shabbos means pencils down. That's it. No more writing. You're done. You're done. Relax. You're done. And Shabbos, in the 
macrocosm in terms of the scope of history means that all the hard work and all the suffering and all the travails of the Jewish people and of, of the entire world will have finally come to its culmination. We're done and we can sit back and we can enjoy a perfect world where we have no trouble, we have no distractions, and we're all free to do nothing but to know God. So having said that, obviously, the whole idea of Mashiach isn't a surprise. It's like, it's not, you know, like if someone wants to read a book and they haven't read it and they ask their friend who read the book, like, oh, don't tell me the end, right? Don't, it's called a spoiler. But this isn't a spoiler because I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of Mashiach. I'm sure you know this is, this is the end of the story. In fact, not only the Jews know about it, it's, it's pretty open, it's pretty well known. In fact, Maimonides writes in Mishnah Torah, in a, in a book of law, it's interesting, sometimes Maimonides waxes philosophical and he gives us a little bit of the philosophy of the history of religion. And over there he says that the uh, purpose of Christianity and Islam and its popularity in the world was to acquaint uh, much of the world's population with the concept of Mashiach. So the fact that Mashiach is like, like it's, it's, it's out there, people know about it, it's, it's, it's a concept. Um, it's not a surprise to anyone. So we all know sooner or later it's going to happen. But the way we relate to this concept of Mashiach today is different than the way we've historically related to it. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. Jews always knew Mashiach was going to come eventually. But it was something far off. It was something fantastical, like a dream. Like, how can you even imagine it? And today, it's really not so far off. The stage is set. And really what's lacking is a shift in consciousness. Hence the purpose of this class, because if we get together and, and, and we talk about the right ideas in the right way, we can all make this mental shift and we can start to see, like the Rebbe said, you have to open the eyes. You have to open the eyes and start to see how the stage is set. How there's a certain messianic reality in the world already to the extent that, let, 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 me, let me make it, I, I think this will, this will frame it in the most accessible way. If you would have talked to a Jew 2,000 years ago, right after the destruction of the, of the, of the second base of Mikdash, or a Jew 1,000 years ago in the times of the Crusades, or, or a Jew five, 600 years ago in the times of, of the Inquisition, or a Jew you know, 200 years ago in, 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 in the times of pogroms, or, or a Jew after the Holocaust. If you, would, if you would ask them, do you believe in Mashiach? Of course, it's one of the 13 principles of faith. Okay. Can you picture this world, the world that you were born in, the world that you were raised in, the world that you've lived in your whole life, could you picture this world as a world with Mashiach? No, I mean, I believe. I believe. Today, we also believe, but we can also start to see it. 
And it, and it makes sense because if we're getting closer, then we're getting closer. And, and, and you can be a pessimist and you can, you can be a cynic and you can try to prove that the world is worse than it's ever been. But first of all, it ain't true. It's impossible because we're getting closer to the culmination, to the punchline. The world is better than it's ever been. That's just axiomatically true. We are closer to the good times than we've ever been. But second of all, open your eyes, look around, look around. Okay, so one of the things that Abam says, when Mashiach comes, is, These are the words of the prophet. That when Mashiach comes, the world will be full of the knowledge of God. What does that mean, the world will be full of the knowledge of God? Now you, you could read that metaphorically, you know, idiomatically, it's, it's poetry. The world will be full of the knowledge of God. Like a lot of people will know a lot of stuff about God, right? But you know what, today, it's not poetry, that's literal. I, I participated in a Siyama Rambam. You know, the Rebbe instituted the study of Rambam every day to finish the entire Mishnah Torah. One study track is to do three chapters a day and to, and to finish the entire Rambam every year. There's another study track to learn one chapter a day and to finish the entire Mishnah Torah once every three years. And then there's also the Sefer and Mitzvahs track. So there was a Sima Rambam. We just had one actually a few weeks ago, but not the one a few weeks ago, the one before that. And uh, there was a global Sima Rambam. And they asked me if I would read, you know, if I would do the Sima, if I would read the last few words of Mishnah Torah. I said, sure. Where's the Siyam Rambam? They said, everywhere. I said, well, I can't show up everywhere. Just tell me where to show up. They said, well, we would like you to, uh, to go to the Oyel, to the Rebbe's resting place. And there will be a, uh, a camera there. There'll be a live hookup. And you're going to be joining all the different speakers who are speaking at the Siyam Rambam. And they had speakers from Europe, from Africa, from uh, the Holy Land, from about three different cities in America. And it would just go one to the, I mean, we take it for granted. I mean, of course, you know, we're, we're, there's Zoom right here, right? We take it for granted. During, during the whole COVID, we took for granted how, how connected we were. But I'm sitting there at this global scene, which is literally global. It's not global like that's the title. For it. It's literally one speaker after the next is on a different continent. And they come to me, and I'm reading the last few lines of, of the Rambam, and, and the Rambam is saying, Hashem, that the world will be full of the knowledge of God. I said, you know, this event right here is the perfect illustration of that. Literally, there are these <laughs> unseen, you know, the Wi-Fi waves that are picking it up. Like, there's no wires. I'm, I'm, I'm talking into some camera. There's no wires anywhere. And, 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 and a speaker before me was in, in South Africa. The speaker after me is in England. And, 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 and somebody in China is watching all three of us. I said, this is literally that the proliferation of Torah knowledge is literally covering the globe. And anywhere you go with a little device, you can pick it up. So it's not poetry anymore. It, it, it's literal. And if you would ask Jews throughout history to imagine it, they couldn't even... I'll tell you something interesting. Just to give you a little... I, I recently uh, got interested in... Um, time travel novels. Not reading them, but reading about the history of time travel novels. 
and I found out that the first time travel novel was written in the early 1700s, in 1733, and it was called Memoirs from the 20th Century. Yeah, it was written in the English language. It was written by an Irish author. I don't remember his name. But what was interesting about it is when you read a time travel novel and they go to the future, you know, like uh, the time machine, H.G. Wells, right? Okay. Whatever sci-fi fantasy you read where they, where they go to the future, it's just everyone understands when you go to the future, what do you find? You know, flying cars and stuff like that, right? There, you find advanced technology. You want to know something really weird? In 1733, the first known time travel novel, when they go to the future, when they go to the 20th century, there is no technological difference between the present and the future. The only differences are political differences, like different countries conquered different countries and they have different kings, but there's no technological difference. Why not? Because there was no such concept. Think about it. The people living in the 1700s had basically the same technology as people a thousand years before them and two thousand years before them. And the whole idea that there would that, that if you would imagine something a hundred years later, technology would be radically different, that didn't really start until the past 250 years with the Industrial Revolution. So think about the fact that even being able to imagine this world in a totally different state than it's in right now, even being able to imagine that is a new concept. Forget about the fact that we can start seeing bits and pieces of it. Being able to imagine it didn't exist until relatively recently in history, in early 1700s, around the time of might I add, the proliferation of the teachings of the students of the Baal Shem Tov. Just if you want to historically plot where, you know, what would be contemporaneous to that. We live in a world today where the discussion of people living forever is not sci-fi. It's not sci-fi. It's, 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 a, it's a real discussion. Prolonging the lifespan of human beings to, to numbers that we would think of as being like biblical numbers, just unfathomable numbers. These are real discussions. The, the ease of travel, how, how this world it, it, it has become really one world, and you can get anywhere you want in the entire world. Come on in. The fact that Science today, and don't ask the scientists if they believe in God or not. Because as I found, like Levi Yitzchak said to the atheist, he said, young man, the same God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. A lot of times when people reject belief, they're rejecting 
a version of belief. But then when you probe deeper, you find out what they're saying is pretty in line with what we know to be the truth. So science today, again, don't ask the scientists if they believe, but ask scientists today if it is generally expected that if we keep searching, if we keep looking at this world, ultimately we will find oneness, that it's all one. That, I mean, Einstein was in search of the unified field theory. Some people call it the unifying, the unifying theory of everything. Did anyone find it yet? They didn't find it yet. But the general understanding is that if we keep examining the physical world, we will discover that it's all one. I mean, the theory of relativity is that matter and energy are one. But ultimately, that it's all one. That achdos Hashem, to use the theological term, Hebrew term, the oneness of God, is, is expected. It's just, that's reality. That's expected by people, not because they read it in the Torah or in any religious book, but because they looked at the world and they came to these conclusions logically. Furthermore, look at the change sociologically. Look at the change as far as the way societies operate, the way cultures operate. Look at the fact that people are so much more civilized today. We take that for granted. We take that for granted. Do you take for granted the fact that slavery was practiced in every country, in every society, in every culture in the world until relatively, relatively recently? And that even though today, unfortunately, there are still holdouts who practice slavery, it's generally regarded as as, as loathsome and, and repugnant. The idea of, of, of inflicting violence upon your enemies, that used to be a normal thing. Any society had to do that in order to survive. Today, it, it, it's considered immoral. You have to justify an act of violence today. You didn't have to justify it once upon a time. The strong, you know, might makes right. The strong conquer the weak, and that's the way it goes. So the fact that even just collectively there's a sense of, of, of gentleness and kindness and, and sympathy, that's a relatively new development in human history. Even, even anti-Semitism. Yes, people will say to you, well, anti-Semitism is worse today. It got worse. It slowed down a little bit. Now it's sped up. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. I am not minimizing any acts of anti-Semitism. It is repugnant and needs to be stamped out. And every act of anti-Semitism is a threat. And it is not a joke. It's to be re regarded seriously. Okay? It's 100% true. At the same time, I just want to help us frame how different the world is today. That when there's an act of anti-Semitism today, if there's anti-Semitic graffiti, let's say, in, in anywhere in the world, it could be Europe, it could be America, it could, it, 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 it could be in, in, in China. If you're a Jewish person, if you're hooked into the news, you will know that it happened today. Now, I want to tell you something. There was not 
It was not so long ago that acts of anti-Semitic vandalism and, and assault were daily occurrences. Daily occurrences. Today, if, again, not to minimize it or justify it, God forbid, but if, if somebody is verbally assaulted in New York City and, and, they're, and they're, they're referred to by an anti-Semitic slur, that will be in the news. 50 years ago, every single kid getting off the bus to go to yeshiva was, 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 was attacked every single day, and not just with anti-Semitic slurs, but he had to learn how to fight because the anti-Semites would, would come beat him. That was not in the news. Today, it's in the news. So again, it's not that it's okay, but I'm just saying we have Baruch Hashem very high standards today as we should, because our standards should be zero anti-Semitism, zero intolerance, and that's where we're heading to. We're, we're heading toward, what is it, what was the campaign in New York City about the, about the no more uh, traffic uh, accidents? Zero. What? Zero vision. Zero vision, well, that's what it was called? Zero vision, yeah, they had, they had bus bench ads and everything about zero vision, yeah, that the vision, vision zero, vision zero, that, that, that our goal is there should be how many, uh, how many uh, pedestrian fatalities in New York City? Zero, right? Okay, so our goal with anti-Semitism is zero, there should be zero. But think about the fact that once upon a time, Jewish blood was cheap. Go find out your family tree, find out how many people were murdered just because of being Jews, and there was absolutely no due process, there was no law and order, there was absolutely no protection under the law, there was no way to, there was, there were, there, there was, there was absolutely no way for, for any recourse for a Jew. So not that it's, uh, that we take it lightly, even, even, the, even the smallest act of anti-Semitism, but I'm saying, thank God our standards, our standards are wonderfully, uh, wonderfully high today. So that's how we can see that the world of Mashiach isn't science fiction anymore. It's very, very close. It's very similar to the world that we see, the world that we know. Furthermore, there's a practical side of this as well. The practical side of this is that a hundred years ago, even if a Jew was able to envision this, and surely there were Jews who could envision it. You know who they're called? I mean, remember the prophets? <laughs> the ones who told us about Mashiach, right? So, Yermio, right? Yeshio, Chezkel, they, 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 they told us about Mashiach, so they, they could envision it, right? And I'm, I'm sure, I mean, we, we, we don't necessarily know in detail, but throughout the generations, there, there were tzaddikim, there were, the, who had, uh, if it wasn't nevuah, call it ruach ha-kaydish, call it what you want, but they could see it. So if they could see it, how come they weren't out campaigning about it? How come they weren't out going and telling everybody? I mean, they would speak about it in generalities, about the, you know, we believe in Mashiach, but how come they weren't going around telling people what they saw and telling people that let, let, let's, let's go spread the word, let's go make a PR campaign, let's get, let's, let's get non-Jews involved? How come that didn't happen? Very practical answer to that question. Imagine what would have happened. There's a practical answer. Why, why weren't they going around telling the, the world that Mashiach is coming? Taken as crazy if they're lucky. They didn't have the reach, but e e even more than that. 
you see, we're, but thank God, we are so, our lives are so good, we can't even understand. We can't even imagine it. Just like probably none of us have ever had to uh, watch our children go to bed without having eaten today, or for two days, or for three days, which I know that my great-grandparents did. They went to bed that way. I mean, that, that, that wasn't so long ago. We're so... No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, <laughs> historically, if Jews would have gone around publicly uh, putting up billboards and saying, let's welcome Mashiach with acts of goodness and kindness, not that they would be taken for crazy. They would be met with the opposite of goodness and kindness. They would be murdered in the streets. It wasn't possible. It wasn't possible to go around and talk about our hope and our vision. So even if we had had it, we, 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 we dare not speak about it. It's a great story. Great story about, you know, I heard from Yeshver, from Reb Zalman Shver, from uh, Rabbi Kotlarski. I'm sure you know the story, but you know, I'm probably can even figure out where I'm heading. 1991, Kinnis HaShluchim in Europe. European, see, there's the Kinnis HaShluchim, the big Kinnis HaShluchim, and there's the regional you know some regional uh, conferences, conventions. So uh, the European conference in 1991. So if you remember 1991, perestroika, things were a little bit thawing out a little bit. So uh, Beryl Lazar was there already in Russia. So he asked Rabbi Kotlarski, let's maybe make the European uh, Knesset Shluchim in, in Moscow. Now you got to understand, it's like, you know how many emissaries, representatives of this Lubavitch Rebbe and, 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 his, and his father-in-law were, were, were taken to prison, interrogated, tortured, murdered in Russia and specifically in Moscow. So, European Kinshashluchim in Moscow, that's, 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 I mean, that's crazier than, than someone walking on Mars. And that's becoming not crazy, right? <laughs> Now you just have a few billion dollars, you can go to Mars, right? So they asked the Rebbe if they could do it. The Rebbe said, if the Shluchim can all get visas, it could be done, it should be done, if they can all get visas. So they, would, they were able to get visas. And they made the, they made the uh, Kinnis in Moscow. And there's a big fancy hotel there. I forget the name of it. But it's near the, the, the big shul is Marina Rosha Shul, which was a historical shul. And then there's a big fancy uh, hotel there in Moscow. That's where they stay. And uh, so Shabbos morning, um, Rabbi Kotlarski is in his room. He hadn't left his room yet. It was early Shabbos morning. And uh, he's pounding at the door. And uh, he answers the door, and one of the local guys, I guess maybe who worked for the hotel, I'm not sure who it was, but somebody who was like responsible for, for the group, he said, they're coming to kill you. He says, who? He says, the old men. The old men are coming to kill you. <laughs> he looks and he sees that there's three old shluchim. Now, who are these shluchim? I'm not going to say their names. I know their names. Every single one of them 
had been arrested, tortured, beaten, had family members and friends murdered by the communists. In fact, one of them, when he was arrested and sent to Siberia, he was arrested from the steps of Marino Rosh Hashul, of the very shul where they were supposed to go walk. So the last time he was on the steps of that shul, he was arrested and sent to Siberia. So these three old chassidim, they were marching down to Rabbi Kotlarski's office to uh, confront him. He looks, he says, what's, what's, what's the problem? They said, you got us all killed. You did it. And you have to understand, you know, these were people who had friends who were killed in those streets. So they told Rabbi Kotlarski, you got us killed. So nobody's getting killed here. They said, look out the window. He looks out the window and there's a bunch of soldiers, a whole formation of soldiers standing in front of the hotel. Well, th there it is, that's it. All the shluchim are gonna be rounded up, God forbid. I mean, that was their experience, that was their reality. Rabbi Kutlarski says to these older gentlemen, they're not coming to harm us. They said, then why are there a troop of soldiers standing out in front of the hotel? He said, it's an honor guard. They're here to escort us. They said, there's no such thing. He said, it is, there is such a thing. They said, no, there's not. He said, I'll, if I go out and I talk to them, will you believe me? They said, yeah, you go. So they watched him from the window. Rabbi Kotlarski went out. And he, with an interpreter, I assume, and he spoke to their honor guard. Yeah, we're going to be walking from the hotel down to the shul. Yeah, it's this, this is how far it is. Yeah, you. And that's how it was. And they, an, honor, an honor guard escorted them, marched them down to the shul with pomp and circumstance, with great fanfare. They went there, they davened, they had a whole davening, and then afterwards they were marched back to the hotel where they were able to comfortably sit back and fabreng and to meet and talk about expanding Judaism where, what was the name of the room in the hotel? It was called the Lenin Communist Party Room. <laughs> Fanciest room in the hotel, the Lenin Communist Party Room. And that's where they sat, the shluchim, and they planned how they're going to expand Jewish activity. So we're talking about change so rapid that in people's lifetimes, in people's lifetimes, they remembered reality one way, and in their own lifetime, reality had become a completely different way. Meaning, the change is so rapid today. The change is so rapid. Think about how rapid change is. Think about what your cell phone looked like 20 years ago, if you had one. I was trying to think. I've been married, I think, uh, 20, maybe 21 years, I gotta ask my wife. But I remember my first cell phone I got was when I was dating my wife, so I've had a cell phone about 20 years. And I think about the cell phone that I had 20 years ago and the cell phone I have today. I remember before I got married, when I saw in one of the stores on Kingston, I was learning at 770 and I was blown away, they had at one of the stores in Kingston, they had a CD-ROM which had the entire New York City telephone book. I was blown away. The entire New York City telephone book on a little disc, on a CD-ROM. I said, that's amazing. How do they do that? 
So the world is changing so rapidly. The world didn't change. The world was static for, for centuries, for millennia. And now all of a sudden, as we're getting to the end, it's changing so rapidly. And the changes are good. Now, you want to tell me, no, it's not all good? Okay, well, here's the thing. There's something called human nature. And until Mashiach comes, there is a Yetzirah. We still do have a Yetzirah. Yeah, a little bit left. And we have free choice. And people can, mis they can misuse things. So the fact that we have the technology to cover the entire world in nothing but the knowledge of God doesn't mean that's the only thing that people use the internet for. People still have the free will to use the internet for other things. The fact that we create, we produce today enough food to feed 7 billion people that's a miracle. By the way, there was something called the population bomb in the late 60s. It was the cover of Time magazine that once the world population hits 2 billion, you will not be able to feed it. It's impossible. There's not enough arable land. And there was some scientist in Dallas, forget his name, he invented some type of uh, genetic engineering that changed the way that wheat grows. And boom, all of a sudden, now we feed 2 billion, we can feed 7 billion. Now, you're going to say, but people still starve. You know the only reason people starve is because of food distribution. Not that there's a not, not enough food. You know how much food we throw away in America? We make enough food in America to feed the entire world. That's a miracle. The only reason people starve is because of food distribution. And why is there poor food distribution? Because of human greed. So the fact is that we're not perfect yet. We're not perfect yet. Humans still make bad decisions. But the point is just like there are people who misuse the internet and use it for other thing, things other than Torah. And just like there's enough food, but not everyone gets it because people are greedy. The point is, though, that the stage is set. Everything we need for world peace is here. Everything we need for everyone to be comfortable and safe and healthy, we have it. We have it. I shouldn't say everything. They haven't cured cancer yet, yet. But it's on the horizon. It's not science fiction anymore. They'll cure all the diseases. They will. Of course they will. So 99% of the things that used to kill everybody throughout history, we basically have the ability to avail every one of those services. The only thing is, okay, so not everybody is 100% enlightened yet. So it doesn't work out that way. But see, that's, the, that's my whole point. At this juncture in history, it's no longer... It's no, the problem is no longer about having the resources or the technology or, 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 or the hardware. The problem is a human issue. We have the technology and the resources and the hardware to ensure safety and prosperity and good health for every human being. The only thing we need to work on, the last frontier, is the human aspect of it. Which means, what do we got to do? We've got to educate the world. That's the last frontier. we just got to, as I, as I began, I said, you know, it's just about consciousness. It's just about teaching. It's just about flipping that switch. So we have to go around and we start. It, it, by the way, I hate to break it to you, but now that we live in such a free world, we Jews have a responsibility to do what our great-grandparents dared not do. But we not only can do it, we must do it. And that means we, as a light unto the nations, have to go around and start telling everybody, guys, 
It's not, it's not science fiction anymore. What our prophets imagined, or they didn't imagine it, but they, they saw it and it was, seemed imaginary, it's very, very plausible now. And the only thing we need to do is get together as a society, as a, as a global village, which that itself is, is a total novelty. The fact that there's such a thing as, you know, the, the ability to unite the world, to get one message out to an entire planet. That, that the ability didn't even exist before. And now the ability exists. So that's, that's the only thing that's lacking, is we got to go, we, the Jewish people, that's our job. That's what, we, that's what we were chosen for. That's what we were chosen for. So and we don't have an excuse anymore. We're no longer allowed to say, look, I'm going to have my Shabbos, and my Kashrus, and my Tefillin, and my kids will go to a Jewish school, and I'm a good Jew. Yes, you are a good Jew. But you know what? It's not enough. It's not enough. Judaism means, and it always meant, we just couldn't do it. Judaism means world peace. Peace, safety, prosperity. For the entire world. Which is interesting because, you know, a lot of religions, their... Uh, their end goal is really only for their own club, <laughs> which is one of their, you know, uh, one, one, one of the arguments they make when they want you to join their religion is, that don't you want to be part of the, you know, the winning team? And our goal is, it's not us and them, it's, it's, it's all of us. There's no us and them. What we, we want, what we want is good for all humanity. Think about that. And, and we don't even tell people they have to become Jewish to benefit from it. What we want is good for all humanity. And that is Judaism. Mashiach isn't some side point, some footnote. Mashiach is saif ma'isim achshavet That from the beginning of the creation of the world, this was the plan. And just for a long time, it was too fantastical, it was too crazy, it was impractical. And now, as we're getting close to it, it's totally doable. And we have to get it done. So let me just suggest some practical, actionable items here. In addition to whatever Torah study that we're already engaged in, we should specifically study subjects pertaining to Mashiach and redemption. Because knowing about it puts us on that wavelength mentally to be aware of it, to see more of it. It's all around. There are messianic things happening all around. But when we're, you know, when we're reading the newspaper, sometimes we, we get their narrative. We pick up on the way they spin it. But if we're learning about Mashiach, then when we... Uh, hear about what's going on in the world, we see it from the proper perspective. That's one thing. Another thing is being proud Jews. Being proud Jews in the free society that we live in, in America today, it's not just we have the right to do it. No, we actually have an obligation to do it. And we make this country and the whole world safer and better for everyone when we do things like public menorah lightings, when we... Uh, we go on the, the, this, the whole class here is about the Mitzvah, about the mitzvah campaigns. Like, so 
I'm sure people understand the, the idea of going out with your tefillin on the street corner and saying, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? Right? So once upon a time, we were like, hey, don't make any trouble. Don't draw attention. Today, no, 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 specifically, it's good. You want to combat anti-Semitism? Stand on a street corner in Manhattan with a pair of tefillin and ask, excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? And put on tefillin with a Jew on a street corner. It's good for the world. It's good for world peace, being openly Jewish and proudly Jewish. Don't ever hide it, not just because you have nothing to hide, but because you're holding out on the world. The world is healed by mitzvahs. The world is healed by Jewish activity. And uh, the third thing I would say, I mean, there, there are many more things, but I would just suggest this, is start living in a Mashiach way which means, it, it, it's very hard to describe this, but it's an attitude. The attitude is, instead of seeing life as hard, instead of seeing life as, as full of problems, look at life as basically good. Look at the world as basically 99% refined, 99% sorted already. You know, there's just that little bit left to tip the scales. And there's no resistance anymore. So what does that mean in very practical terms? I know nobody here is like, like, I don't think anyone here is involved in like geopolitics. So I'm not gonna tell you don't go to war with other countries. Let me tell you something that's like closer to home. You don't have to fight with your spouse. You don't have to fight with your kids. You don't have to, you don't have to fight with anybody. Everybody's good. Everyone wants to do good. Everything's smooth today. There's no more resistance. Yesterday, I was up in the country, I was talking to a bunch of mothers, 200 Jewish mothers, about parenting. And it was interesting to see the lights go on when I would tell them things like, no, you actually don't have to um, threaten your kids to get them to do the right thing. No, actually, you can just deepen your bond with them, and they'll naturally want to do the right thing. Now, some of them were saying, no, that's not how our parents did it. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe historically, there was too much of a clipper, too much of a shell, you know, that's what we call it Kabbalistically, too much of a covering, and there was resistance and it had to be broken. And that's why people were harsher, and that's why education was done in a more harsh way. But today, the shell is broken. Nobody needs harshness, to the contrary. Today, everyone needs sweetness. Everyone wants to be good. Everyone wants to do the right thing. <clears throat> so that's it. We've got to start living in the new reality. And we don't know which mitzvah it's going to be. Like Maimonides says, you've got to see the world like a perfectly even, balanced scale. And one tiny little good deed can be the one that tips the scales for the entire world. We don't know what it's going to be, but it doesn't have to be a big thing. It should be now.